The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, with UK museums and galleries in crisis, might the Royal Academy be forced to sell its Michelangelo? We look at the story that's emerged in recent days that some of the Royal Academicians, the artists and architects that run the Royal Academy, are suggesting selling the Tadei Tondo by Michelangelo to prevent huge job losses and keep the Royal Academy afloat. Also this week, Margaret Carrigan speaks to Legacy Russell, the author of a new book, Glitch Feminism, about how her ideas relate to the world of art. And in this episode's Work of the Week, Emma Ramos of the British Museum chooses a sculpture from the Tantra exhibition that opened at the museum this week. Before we begin, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper, and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, as we've heard before on this podcast, COVID-19 is wreaking havoc on museums across the world. And in Britain, where museum models have increasingly prioritised self-generated income, the lockdown and social distancing measures have prompted an unprecedented crisis in arts funding. The Royal Academy of Arts, which receives no public funding, is faced with a financial deficit of about £8 million. And RA staff have been warned that nearly half the employees, perhaps 150 people, face redundancy. Last weekend, the Observer newspaper in the UK reported that a small group of academicians, the artists and architects that effectively run the organisation, will argue that instead of cutting jobs, the Academy should consider selling the Tadei Tondo, a unique marble sculpture by Michelangelo. An RA spokeswoman said that the Royal Academy of Arts has no intention of selling any works in its collection, but the disquiet among academicians is real and this is not the first time that the sale of the Tondo has been seen as a means of saving the Academy. I spoke to Alison Cole, the editor of the art newspaper and the author of a book on the Tondo for the Royal Academy, and Bob and Roberta Smith, who's a Royal Academician and former Tate trustee, about the Tondo and the grim picture in UK arts funding. Alison, could we begin by just talking about what the Tondo is? Well, the Tondo, Tondo means a circular composition, and this one is an unusually big Tondo in white marble, and it shows um, the Virgin and Child and the Infant St. John in rocky landscape. And it's carved by Michelangelo. And he, he made this along with another similar tondo when he was in his late 20s. And he was blocking it out about the same time he was making the famous statue of David. And it's regarded as one of his most sort of intimate and lyrical works. It's unfinished, isn't it? It's unfinished and that's part of the fascination because it shows his whole method, um, his, his technique, his experimental approach um, from the sort of first idea to completion. So you've got all these layers of the artist's practice and, and the artist's thought. But what, so what happened to it in its lifetime? I mean, did it languish unfinished in, in a studio somewhere or did, was it actually given to the patron? Not at all. It was commissioned by a cloth merchant, a wealthy cloth merchant, Tadeo Tadei, which is why it gets its name. And he wanted it for his house. He was a sort of new generation of young collectors and he liked avant-garde. 
And even though it was unfinished, he hung it proudly on his walls. So what was Michelangelo's rep- reputation at that moment? Was he the leading artist of that time or was he a sort of young pretender? He he was the leading artist of his time. He just um, worked on the David statue and he, shortly after the um, Tondo, which is maybe why it was left unfinished, he was summoned to Rome to work for the Pope. But Leonardo was also creating a stir. He'd come back to Florence and they were both... Um, working in competition with each other. So how did it find its way to London? Ah, oh, that's an interesting story. Um, it it basically disappeared and then it, it turned up in the possession of someone called um, Wickar, who was really the chief um, looting le- lieutenant for Napoleon. And he claimed that it he'd got it still from the house of Tadeo Tadei. And... Sir George Beaumont, who was on a grand tour, um, came across it for sale and bought it from Wickar and was terribly proud when he sort of hauled it back home and hung it in his home, where it became the chief talk of all the artists uh, around the Royal Academy. Right. And we'll come on to the current artist of the Royal Academy in a moment with Bob. Um, But can you tell me a bit about its... Did it go into the Royal Academy collection quite soon after arriving in London? It did, because Sir George Beaumont died, sadly, quite soon after. Um, and he he expressed his wish that it should go to the Royal Academy. He was a, a Royal Academician um, and an amateur landscape painter. And he thought the Royal Academy artists could do with authentic models rather than just plaster casts. And his wife um, followed his wishes, and in 1830, it arrived at the Royal Academy. It was sent round in a, a cab for the cost of a pound. And what about this lovely fact that we have a John Constable sketch? Seems to me emblematic of, of the esteem with which it was held in, at that time when it did arrive in London. Yes, very much so. It caused a lot of excitement, and um, Constable called it the most beautiful work in existence. How lovely. We'll come on to the current situation in a moment, but I just want to get a flavour, Bob. You're a Royal Academician today. What position does the Tondo have as a as a work in the Royal Academy collection today for the Royal Academicians? Is it, is it something you all talk about? Is it a sort of source of great pride to you as, as academicians? Well, I think, I mean, I can talk about it for, for me personally. I think it's, you know, <laughs> one of the world's great humanist achievements, really. But... Uh, uh it, it you know in, in terms of the royal academy they they've uh, they've given given it pride of place in its uh in the collections gallery at the royal academy it was lent recently to the national gallery and uh, you know incredible care was taken and royal academicians it has a famous kind of hairline crack in the back of it so the royal academicians the the sculptors were were there you know really involved in consultations about that uh, uh, and so i think for those who understand it it's an absolutely iconic thing you know it's michelangelo you know he's not he's not any slouch you know it's like uh, one of the greatest artists that humanity has produced you know uh, and so it's an extraordinary thing and and it's in in the royal academy so so for i mean from my own point of view 
I was lucky enough when I was younger to study at the British School at Rome and we went and looked at the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you know, uh, 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 up on the scaffolding when that was being renovated. So for me, that experience was just so powerful and amazing. And then later, you know, seeing David and then the, the, then the unfinished slaves, you know. <laughs> I mean, Michelangelo is great at being an unfinished artist. You know, these slaves emerging from the marble, bound by marble, if you like, being released by Michelangelo. And this is that kind of image. It, it's an incredibly powerful and beautiful image uh, uh, and so i think it, it it's the you know the beating heart of the royal academy i don't think that's an ex- exaggeration alison in terms of the attitude at the royal academy to this sculpture over time it has fluctuated hasn't it so this idea that this as 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 bob says this extraordinary item might be sold has been mooted in the past can you tell us a little bit about that Yes, there was a, a mooted sale in the late 1970s when the RA was in similar dire straits. And at that time, they were saved by the government because the government granted them um, government indemnity, which was an insurance that allowed them to do their blockbuster exhibitions. And I think the um, Friends were, were founded around that time too. And I, I think when they were thinking of selling it, they were very conscious that their patron was the Queen and that it could be regarded as a slippery slope because, of course, it's a national treasure. And at that time, it was valued at six million, which is a cautionary tale about deaccessioning. I mean, the Royal Academy has formed because it had the Leonardo cartoon, didn't it? So, and it and it sold that, which was a mistake. I think everybody thinks that's a mistake. I mean, any right-minded person, it's it that was. I mean, of course, that's not a precedent for now because that ended up at the National Gallery. The Tondo, I mean, it wouldn't. It would be hard to uh, imagine raising the kind of sums of money in the public realm for it to remain in the UK. So uh, it's a different situation. It's a frightening idea, actually. And, of course, selling off the Leonardo in 1962 didn't solve the problems because then they were back in the 1970s looking at flogging off the Michelangelo. Yes, of course, of course, in all of these things, you have to plan not for the crisis that you're in, but for the third crisis down the road, you know. I mean, these, are lo- these institutions are uh, institutions lasting hundreds of years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's crazy to sell off the, the silver, you know. So, Alison, you mentioned that the Tondo was valued at £6 million in the 1970s. What do you think it's worth now, given that the Leonardo Salvatore Mundi sold for $450 million in uh, 2017? What, what, what do you think this is worth? Well, interestingly, the art newspaper estimated the value of the Tondo at that time, 2017, at about £100 million. But with the Salvatore Mundi, we're looking at several hundred million now. I'd like to ask you, Bob, the the Observer story focuses on a group of artists, unnamed artists, among the the ranks of the academicians who feel that rather rather than losing members of staff, rather than these mass redundancies, selling the Tondo would be an option. I want to know, have you heard from any any fellow academicians asking you for support with this endeavour? Yes. Yes, and I told them absolutely bluntly that uh, I was not... You know, I fought a long battle, actually, with the art newspaper uh, and the art fund uh, to save 
Henry Moore's old flow from being sold off. And, uh, you know, sculpture, people characterise sculpture as lumps of bronze, lumps of marble. These are extraordinary things made by human beings and they need to be seen by other human beings. And we're lucky enough to have this in the UK. So we want to... You know, I want to uh, lobby to tell the story of the Tondo, say what it is. You know, I mean, I mean, everybody knows Michelangelo. You know, it's not a, you know, it's not an obscure artist. Uh, so, you know, I pretty bluntly told them that was a daft idea. But uh, but they're well-meaning. You know, that's the tricky thing. It's not. Uh, you know, we're in a, a nightmare scenario. All of these museums, all of these... Yesterday I saw that people were protesting outside Hampton Court uh, because the royal palaces want to... Well, they don't want to, but they're being considering laying off 150 people. Well, we don't want to sell the mantenures in Hampton Court, do we? You know, that, that, or, or flog off the Rothkos in the Tate. They're considering letting go almost 300 staff. And, and the South Bank Centre is the same issue. Do we want to turn the National Theatre into flats? You know, I mean, the, we can't do this. It's a, it's a mistake. And so I think one of the answers is to... You know, it's, it's been brought about at the moment because of the end of the furlough scheme. So we have to lobby to maintain these schemes. But we also have to uh, lobby to, to, to think about philanthropy in another way, I think. Philanthropists love to support uh, projects where... Which are capital projects where a building where a name can be attached or a specific kind of project they they don't like to pay wages, and we need art galleries the the royal academicians who are advocating the sale of this are right in the sense that art galleries are buildings they're objects, but they're also people, so I have some sympathy with them i I, I think this is the wrong it's the wrong thing to do. But we have to understand that if we, um, if we let go huge numbers of people from the palaces, the Royal Academy, the, the, uh, the, the Tate, uh, we, will, we will denude our artistic endeavour in this country. Uh, and, and that's a terrible thing. So I think it's, a, uh, it's talking about government, it's talking about wealthy people. There's a lot of money in London. Let's try and get a, a, a new effort to think about paying some salaries uh, out of that money. Can you give us a flavour of, you know, the kinds of discussion? I mean, you, you've heard from this group among the Royal Academicians. Um, the, the the academy itself has very strongly come out against the idea of selling but but can you i'm not i'm not clear on what the kind of community of academicians is like in terms of we know of the official committees we know of the you know the the overall body but are there cliques within the academicians if you like who are sort of <laughs> like-minded who are you know who have certain agendas or who are lobbying for certain policies or whatever can you give us a sort of just a flavor because it seems it's a, it's it's an amorphous mass in my mind and i can't really I'd like you to sort of nail a little bit of how it works among academicians. I mean, I think the Royal Academicians are, um, you know, like all artists, really. If you try to get them together, it's like herding cats. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> they're all going off in all sorts of uh, directions. They're all very well-meaning. I mean, I don't think there's a malign 
person amongst them who's tried to... Uh, I mean, the, the, the effort by these academicians is to secure the future of the Royal Academy. So they, you know, they're thinking about the Royal Academy. So it's it, it's not that, but it's just, it's it's not that there's big arguments going on, uh, but it, it's just that this understanding, the future of the Royal Academy is dependent upon all sorts of things, you know, um, artists, getting younger artists in there, uh, uh, making it lively, putting on extraordinary exhibitions. But it is also about the legacy of the, the, the love and understanding of art. And so, and I think the Tondo is, is totally in that area, you know. It's a peculiar institution. All the Royal Academicians, they're all, in a way, kind of... Uh, small or large business people working away trying to keep their own shtick going but i bet i bet none of them the 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 ones who own have uh, assistants working for them would have dipped into their own funds to to pay their assistants that they would have furloughed them using the government scheme and they will be thinking about what to what to do now as the whole of the art world is uh, 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 and it's a crisis. It, it really is a crisis because the end of the furlough scheme means horrible, nasty decisions or a new effort, you know, a new art fund. You know, we need a new effort to try and think about uh, wages. Um, Alison, you've, you're working as we speak, putting an issue of the art newspaper to bed, which is dominated actually by the crisis in UK institutions. What, I mean, you know, you will have been in touch with, with, with the DCMS over the last few months asking them what's going on. Can you give us a sense of what the response from government is to the crisis? Do you feel they are doing enough? What are they doing, in fact? Well, they're obviously sympathetic and there is a 1.57 billion emergency fund. But, you know, with this second wave coming um, and the latest announcements, it's looking even worse, really, for the arts and the hospitality sectors. So there needs to be a concerted um, effort with government and philanthropists, I think, to help the arts through this really difficult situation. And, you know, to consider selling off your greatest treasures at this time would be madness. It's, you know, it would set a very dangerous precedent, which I'm sure no other museums would want to want to follow. And it is the only Michelangelo marble in Britain. Bob, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, well, I just want to agree and just, and just say that, you know, the Tondo is an extraordinary thing. You know, we fought to save Old Flow. Old Flow is a similar kind of image in a way. It's a, a you know, a powerful image of... Uh, you know, a woman, maybe old flows, kind of Madonna image. It's an incredibly powerful and beautiful thing. And uh, it, 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 it needs to live in Britain. It needs to live at the Royal Academy. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a lovely and inspiring thing made by a human being. So you can fall in love with Michelangelo and fall in love with that image. It's an incredible thing. Okay, well, both of you, thank you very much, and let's see how the government responds. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you.
You can read more about this story and the UK arts funding crisis in the print edition of the Art Newspaper, which is out next week, online at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. And Alison Cole's book, The Tadei Tondo, is published by the Royal Academy and priced £12.95. Margaret Carrigan talks to Legacy Russell in a moment, but first, here are a few of the top stories on the Art Newspaper's website this week. The New York governor, Mayor Andrew Cuomo, announced this weekend that a permanent memorial statue to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court justice who died on the 18th of September, will be installed in Brooklyn, where she grew up. As Helen Stoilus reports, Cuomo suggested Brooklyn Bridge Park as a potential location and said Ginsburg selflessly pursued truth and justice in a world of division, giving voice to the voiceless and uplifting those who were pushed aside by forces of hate and indifference. Archaeologists working in northwest Argentina have discovered an unknown Inca settlement thanks to the help of a local high school student, Gary Shaw reports. The previously unrecorded site, called Cerro Quemado, Burned Mountain, comprises various Inca ruins and stands at the southern frontier of their empire. Archaeologists were led to the structures during a workshop by a particularly keen student called Louis M. And finally, Maurizio Catalan's work Comedian, the infamous banana taped to a wall shown at the Art Basel Miami Beach Fair last December, has been given to the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York. The donation does not include the original banana itself or the duct tape that was used to attach it to the wall. It consists of a certificate of authenticity and a long list of instructions with diagrams about how it should be installed. The donor of the work was anonymous. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This autumn, Christie's presents an exciting calendar of auctions and art fairs. Bid on works by Bridget Riley, Patrick Caulfield, Graham Sutherland and more in the Modern British Art Sale in London on the 29th of September. Christie's is also proud to support two international art fairs this season, hosted on their innovative digital platform. Currently open for bidding, La Biennale Paris is a landmark event featuring works spanning 4,000 years of art history from 42 world-renowned galleries. And from the 6th of October, discover over 600 works from exhibitors showcasing artists from across Africa, Europe and North America at 154 online, powered by Christie's. The refreshed schedule complements Christie's private sales. Bid and buy art at any time and from anywhere. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Don't forget you can catch up with Series 1 of the Art Newspaper's other podcast, A Brush With, featuring four in-depth artist interviews at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you're listening now. Now, Legacy Russell's book, Glitch Feminism, is out next week. Part manifesto, part memoir, part art and literary criticism, Glitch Feminism explores digital identities and how they inform our physical sense of self. Exploring online spaces, ranging from early 2000s teen chat rooms to digital spaces created by the black, queer, gender non-conforming and othered communities, the book also analyses works by artists like Boychild, Sandra Perry, Victoria Sin and Juliana Huxtable, among many others. Our senior editor in New York, Margaret Carrigan, spoke to Russell about the book. Legacy, I think we should start with the basics, and that is, of course, with this idea of the glitch. Um, In the intro to your manifesto, you describe it as an error, a mistake, a failure to function. And within technoculture, a glitch is a part of machinic anxiety, an indicator of something gone wrong. So this relates to gender, you continue, in that the body becomes a stand-in for a machine in some way. And 
And when the body can't be read as male or female, or when it actively refuses to subscribe to that binary, it's glitching out, essentially. I think, at least for me, for people that grew up with the internet who have always had to construct online identities of some sort, um, this makes perfect sense. But I guess I'm more interested, when did you first start thinking about the idea of glitch in relationship to gender and identity and, and start applying that to the way you view how bodies move in the world? For me, it's something when I consider this question of being a digital native, someone who has grown up with the internet and feels deeply intertwined with it, entangled with it, you know, challenged by it, excited by it, that it's been um, kind of an inherent part of my education and understanding about myself as a as a woman and as a you know femme presenting black queer woman um it is definitely this kind of presence of the binary that has felt maybe um that i have been housed within very much so over the course of of a life and you know thinking very much so how do you reconcile those things like these things that exist as polarities and are pitted against each other um and asking questions too about ways where this construct of the masculine versus and against the feminine right is something that um maybe it just doesn't fully gel in terms of how we live out in the world and how as well we shape ourselves and our identities and think through ways we can be empowered through them so when I think about where that nascent beginning starts. It is really like 1990s being on, you know, the internet in chat rooms, being a kid, very much so, which I think is a very universal experience for a lot of folks who, you know, grew up uh, with and around the internet as a culture and material. And it was the kind of place of play that one was able to expand within um, and as well sort of explore that allowed for this discourse about gender to situate itself very early on. But of course, too, you know, being a kid and navigating that, you're very much so almost like pre-verbal um, in trying to put some of those things to words. And so, you know, in my adult self, as somebody who is an art historian and who, you know, works with great care um, and excitement and nerdiness, looking at, um, you know, intersections of performance and gender and digital and new media, um, it felt like a really right place to start. One, of course, that lives with me intimately as tied to my ongoing lived experience. One that, of course, is shared across a broader community, both on and away from our screens. And then as well, you know, one that intersects out in the world as we're thinking very much so about this discourse around gender and the way very much so it has been weaponized um, to work against what it, it can be in terms of our broader range um, and claiming what that can look like through the lens of blackness and queerness. So the, the term glitch feminism specifically, I think you coined in what, like 2012? Yeah, so it was really the beginnings of this all were in these essays that I, I wrote. Um, one was for the Society Pages, which is um, an incredible blog and journal that comes um, out of Nathan Jurgensen's work, who is a phenomenal writer, thinker, theorist. Um, he began kind of thinking about this question of what he calls digital dualism around that same period of time. Uh, and so the question of digital dualism looks at this kind of fallacy, right, that says that, you know, our lives as they exist on the internet actually are disconnected from and isolated from. Um, they do not fully inform or maybe 
um, are not at all tethered to in any way our lives away from the screen. And that just isn't real. So, you know, I, I remember in those early periods of time um, in conversation with um, Nathan as tied to the society pages for that early essay, thinking very much so about, you know, where I was. And at the time I was living in London, I was going to grad school, um, you know, deep in the, the sort of uh, seas of theory and thinking and asking questions about really too, um, and maybe this is something, you know, where we can pivot to talk a little bit about the question of the manifesto, but, you know, why is it that within the form of art history, as we are thinking about ways of decolonizing it, reshaping it, that these um, kind of strands of, 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 of thought is tied to Black histories, feminist histories, queer theory, as they intersect, um, you know, aspects of the, the language of that felt really alienating, but actually being within um, an institutional space and, and, you know, going to grad school, seeing that actually so much of a lived experience of blackness and queerness and the way that it came into contact felt like it really was alienating, um, you know, what was existing in the world from its root um, by putting it within an institutional framework. And so, you know, the question of what a manifesto can do and the writing that then, you know, continued to build from there when I um, wrote the second essay on this for Rhizome around that same period of time really came out of trying to think about ways where there could be a more expansive imaginary that allowed for um, a different type of space to be occupied. And two, you know, thinking about the form of the manifesto could perhaps be a little outrageous, right? Because I think that part of the ambition of what um, radical change demands really is thinking through ways of pushing limits and challenging perhaps structures that feel almost impossible or too big to undo uh, with very uh, ambitious means. And so manifestos for me like, do that work. They allow us to dream super big um, and to make demands and to be uncompromising in those demands in a way that is uh, really emancipatory and exciting and liberating. What's so interesting for me is that because you're talking about such big, boundless, limitless forms of understanding existing in the world, you you use art within glitch feminism as a, a good litmus test for this expression of glitching, a, a kind of viewing device of sorts that reveals the experience of being interstitial within a reality, wherever that reality exists. And in this way, it's about, you know, existing on the margins of a system. And I, even if embedded squarely within that system that is coding your life, which I think really comes to the fore in your discussion of, you know, blackness and queerness. And you identify a number of artists, specifically artists of color and queer artists, whose practice or work speaks to this interstitiality. And I wondered if you could kind of walk us through some of those works that really spoke to you about what you identified as something as glitching. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, Often when tasked with thinking about what a manifesto does, I, um, and especially thinking about glitch feminism and turning over in my head, you know, why is it that um, art and the manifesto are living together in this text? Like, well, for me, on the one hand, it's 
purely my absolute love and adoration for, you know, various creative mediums as they are expressed through digital material, um, you know, very much so someone who has a long and complicated and joyful relationship with art um, and contemporary art. Um, but also, too, I feel like that artists um, set forward some pretty extravagant and incredible propositions in their work. And so the manifesto and, you know, what an artist aims to do and what a manifesto aims to do kind of share some great threads um, and intersect in kind of these wonderful ways as we're trying to consider what it means to imagine a world differently. So the artists in the book do some of that. It felt really appropriate to have the manifesto speak through the practices of each of the artists in the book and to allow those artists really to be centered and celebrated in the work that they're doing to expand and change not only how we are looking at defining the body, uh, reconciling with it, you know, struggling with um, the way that it is, of course, weaponized and politicized and positioned and um, not always cared for, right, um, out in the world at large, that artists allow us to do some of that thinking and to do so via critical means with a lot of rigor. And, um, you know, thinking to kind of the words of E. Jane, who's one of the artists in the book, who has written a phenomenal manifesto in their own right called Nope, a Manifesto, um, kind of has thought a lot about this question of, to quote them, a culture that loves us. So the manifesto does that too. It thinks about a way of making space for that type of care. And, you know, we think often about the personal being political when you talk about this, starting with maybe strands of a memoir that, you know, are very much so embedded in my life experience. But it is appropriate and feels appropriate, too, to recognize that the sort of creative practices of each of these artists are deeply political. They're ones that are both political and personal and kind of allow for those things to be bound up within one another in all of the best ways. So, um, you know, to talk about some of the artists in the book, the book starts with um, Mark Aguar, who is a late artist who um, has done, you know, some incredible work, I think, in, in thinking about the way that the work has continued to travel and be so deeply impactful across so many different disciplines uh, in the wake of the artist's um, passing. And so, you know, with this, this work that, you know, is the, these are the axes, which is a piece that uh, starts the book off, it really sets forward some ambitions for what the book hopes to do too, and, and allows Mark to be center stage. My hope is that there is space for each of these artists to kind of hold court together. And I really love, as I think about the book, to consider it as a sort of chorus, right, that they're kind of collectively, um, you know, operating in sync and in conversation with each other across generations, across different types of practices, across different approaches to language and poetics, and working to think about this question of, of the glitch as a sort of breaking of what's broken um, towards corrective means. So these are the axes that by Mark Aguar does that, you know, it kind of allows us to think through what the redefinition of the body is, you know, beginning with this statement that bodies are inherently valid. If we begin with that as a kind of assumption, right, we have to take a look and we zoom out and think about this question of culture that loves us. If, you know, bodies are inherently valid, why is it that 
this uh, sort of tension exists within the statement that E. Jane makes uh, um, in noting that we need culture that loves us, right? Because we're seeing so many examples of where certain bodies have been privileged or protected over other bodies um, towards um, very problematic and violent memes, right? So thinking about that um, has been really meaningful and recognizing too that the book also, um, you know, traverses different types of practice ranging from performance to sculpture to thinking about, um, you know, AR and VR. So, you know, for example, the artist Boy Child is a phenomenal performance artist. Um, has, I felt very lucky to be in her presence as, you know, I have seen her grow in her career and, and every single time I've seen her perform, it's just, it's watching cybernetics come to life. Um, she embodies that, you know, fully and wholly, um, thinking very much so about the history of queer nightlife, but also to the ways where um, a sort of Bouteau-like performance and the traditions of that can be brought into contemporary art um, and live in the present with us as a really wonderful and enriched history. Thinking about, you know, other folks who are um, included in the book also, too, it extends to, you know, the White Pube, for example. The White Pube is a phenomenal uh, duo of, of art critics um, who are based in the UK. Uh, they've done some incredible work in thinking critically about ways that the form and format of art criticism can be glitched, right? That actually a component of what we assume to be the central pillar for art history, which is this question of art criticism and how it shapes or engages different types of power and systems of power really do need to be interrogated as a means of decolonizing art history more broadly and thinking through other ways that people of color can be empowered to kind of find their own language, how their work in doing kind of critiques that exist and are presented through the internet as a digital material and, you know, are circulated within those spaces, places, and communities, right, allow us to perhaps reconsider what the audience is for art history and who is responsible for building those narratives and telling those stories. Absolutely. And some, that's something that I think is really valuable and really pressing right now um, with the kind of institutional reckoning that's accelerated over the past several months uh, in light of recent protests. Um, but, uh, you know, that's obviously been going on for quite some time, this kind of need to decolonize the institutional framework in which we view art, whether that institution is a museum or art criticism or art, art history or anything like that. I wonder how you think about glitch as something that influences the way you approach your job as an artist and a curator and, and how you can kind of reformat um, institutional narratives and how we represent art in different contexts for to be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it is a mantra, I, I have to say, and I, I, I feel like that this moment has brought to light the necessity of it even more given that, you know, I recognize that through the course of this present pandemic, that a lot of institutions have really had some like, you know, come to Jesus moments, for lack of a better term, trying to reconcile with very the very complicated and real dynamics of what it means to be a museum with a capital M. Um, and that actually that museums are not neutral sites. It is, you know, uh, by default, the nature of a museum space to um, be one that 
um, engages with questions of the academy and the canon, um, which are also by default uh, rules, really, in terms of, you know, who is kept in and not, um, and these questions of gatekeeping as a core component of what it means to exist um, through and, and as driven purely by institutional means. So it seems like, you know, for me, one of the primary takeaways of this present moment and, you know, as well in terms of my long, uh, you know, relationship with institutions, having worked at the Met and the Whitney and the Brooklyn Museum and, you know, Creative Time and Studio Museum. So, you know, my relationship with institutions is one that goes deep and wide, right? Um, is really recognizing that the best institutions are constantly trying to glitch. They're constantly trying to think through ways to make sure that art lives actively in the world, right? And is not just housed behind uh, white walls. I think that, you know, that is a complicated and challenging thing to do actively as a mantra, especially at an institutional scale, given that museums sometimes we move slow um, and, you know, we can be at points um, resistant to change simply because, you know, that is the, the reality of what a uh, kind of institutional presence um, can mean. But I also feel incredibly optimistic in seeing, you know, with the kind of thought leadership uh, that has been, you know, ongoing, um, speaking, you know, at, at Studio Museum, but also, you know, with our incredible peers, recognizing that this is work that, you know, many folks are committed to, and that these conversations as they continue to unfold, right, really uh, force everyone to kind of look starkly in the mirror and to be thinking about, you know, what history has brought us here, um, you know, what the politics are of, you know, collections and exhibitions, the fact that actually the act of, of making exhibitions, the question of being a curator um, is all bound up with different questions of power dynamics, um, systems of power that actually, um, you know, really do require constant redressing. So, you know, I do feel that this question of, you know, ways that that can be possible really has to run deep in institutional spaces. It really is the task, I think, of this present generation and future generations, right, to be in collaboration deeply um, in kind of that co-conspiring uh, with all the brilliance of these, you know, incredible folks who are traversing institutional spaces and as well those who are standing outside of it, right, and resistance and refusal of institutional spaces, which I think is an important conversation to be having, that, you know, that how that loop works is one um, that, you know, needs to be holistic and needs to be centered on questions of care. And, you know, as well, the sort of bedrock of what it means to be um, engaging with artists, right, is recognizing that artists are, are bodies, they are, are living and breathing, they, you know, uh, require something more than um, existing within a line item. And, and I think that we, as you know, within an institutional space, when we start thinking about um, what it means to sh like exist in, in uh, the process of, of sharing our exhibitions, having them circulate out in the world, it has to start with people first um, and has to start with the acts of care, um, you know, of the bodies that are, are living and breathing inside of the institutions alongside of, of course, the objects. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Legacy. It's been so interesting. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
Glitch Feminism, a manifesto by Legacy Russell, is published by Verso and costs £9.99 or $14.95. If you go to versobooks.com, it's available at 40% off worldwide until the end of September. And finally, it's time for Work of the Week. The exhibition Tantra, Enlightenment to Revolution has just opened at the British Museum in London and its curator, Imma Ramos, has chosen to talk about a 19th century painted clay figure of the goddess Kali, one of the many highlights of the show. You can see an image of the work at theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast link at the top of the page and look for this episode. Imma, before we start talking about this specific work, tell us about the exhibition and about Tantra because I think it's, it's a sort of little understood phenomenon, isn't it? Yes, well, you know, the aim of this exhibition, uh, which is called in Tantra Enlightenment Revolution, is really to challenge some of the um, stereotypes which are still very prevalent today um, around Tantra. Um, I think most people in the West might associate it with sex still, um, with hedonism, uh, see it as a kind of guide to sex almost. And so the aim of the show is really to set the record straight on that. And I suppose it might be helpful for me to um, explain in a, a sentence or two what Tantra actually is. So Tantra is an Indian philosophy um, and it affirms that all aspects of our material world is sacred and infused with divine feminine power. And Tantra teaches that enlightenment can be achieved rapidly by actively engaging with spiritual obstacles, such as desire, aversion and fear, in order to ultimately transcend them. And this is why, as we explore in the exhibition, tantric imagery is unique in its inclusion of erotic and macabre imagery. Right, so that is embodied in this work that you've chosen to talk about, right? Absolutely, yes. I thought this, I mean, this is a highlight of the exhibition and it really does embody those ideas. So so tell us about it. It, This is a a philosophy that's that's 1500 years old, right? But you've chosen uh, a work which is actually relatively recent. Yes, so this dates to the 19th century and... um, we see um, the goddess Kali in this sculpture. Um, You know, the goddesses that Tantra inspired really challenged traditional models of womanhood as as passive and docile um, by expressing both destructive and maternal power. And we really see that through this um, clay sculpture of the Tantric goddess Kali. Um, She illustrates this tension between the maternal and the destructive perfectly. So throughout history, um, she has been both a protective mother and also a revolutionary icon for her devotees. Um, so yes, yeah, she dates to the 19th century and um, this, was, this sculpture was made in Bengal and Bengal was an early center of Tantra. And images like this were made for the Kali Puja um, the Kali Puja is one of the biggest festivals in the region. It's actually about to come up again um, this year, uh, this autumn. And every year, clay sculptures of the goddess like this are still produced. 
um, just like this to commemorate uh, the occasion. And they're housed in temporary shrines, which are set up on street corners. And devotees visit each one, providing Kali with offerings. And images of Kali like this are believed to become enlivened when they're ritually uh, venerated in this way. Right, so tell us what's going on, because beneath Callie's feet appears to be a corpse. Is that right? So that's a great question. So appears to be a corpse. So often tantric goddesses do stride over corpses, which are symbols of the ego, that um, the goddesses help their devotees to transcend. But in this particular case... Um, actually, Kali is shown striding over her husband, the god Shiva. So according to tantric belief, existence results from the erotic union between Shakti, who is embodied here by Kali, and Shiva as pure consciousness. Shiva is a really important god within tantric philosophy and practice. But this symbolism of Kali striding over Shiva articulates her superiority um, because without her, he would remain inert and the universe would just perish. So without Shakti, Shiva is literally a Shava or a corpse. Shava means corpse. And um, that's really emphasised here by his deathly pallor. So he does deliberately look corpse-like, but her striding over him really symbolises the superiority of the feminine principle within Tantra. I'm really intrigued by this aspect of Tantra, that it is a more more socially democratic philosophy that you explore a bit in the catalogue. Can you explain a bit more about that? Because you've you've talked about how it challenged norms in terms of feminine power. But is it right that it was Tantra is accessible to a broader range of the population than other philosophies? Yeah, so um, Tantric initiation, uh, Tantra emerged around the 6th century, and it was, um, it deliberately challenged the hierarchical social order or caste system within Orthodox Hinduism by offering initiation to um, people from different social backgrounds, including including women, but also including um, uh, others marginalised by society, including those, ex- those excluded from the caste system who previously uh, were referred to as untouchables. Now, from the 20th century onwards, they're referred to as uh, Dalits, which means the oppressed. And of course, caste is still a major issue um, in India. So the whole idea behind that was really to break down distinctions. Um, Tantra broke down distinctions between notions of purity and impurity. So those who were excluded from the caste system were regarded as ritually impure. So, so yes, in that sense, you know, in principle, Tantra, um, it was radical in um, the way that it offered initiation to to those who had been excluded. And, and tell me about, I mean, this is a, a work that was made in the colonial era, right? So uh, how did colonial powers respond to goddesses like Kali? Yes, that's a big theme uh, in the exhibition. There's a whole section um, devoted to the reception of Tantra and Tantric goddesses during the colonial period. So, um, yes, Kali's popularity became a focus for revolutionary politics in the 19th century, at the time when this sculpture was made. 
The figure actually entered the museum in 1894 and we records don't reveal who the donor was, but it was probably a colonial official or a missionary based in Bengal. And at that time, Bengal was not only a major tantric centre, but it was also a nucleus. It was the nucleus of British rule. And Kali gripped the British psyche as this icon of horror and irrationality. Uh, colonial officials completely misunderstood her symbolism uh, and assumed she was demonic. Um, but what's really, really interesting, and the uh, you know it's the most exciting strand of of the narrative in the show that um, exploring the role of Kali in this during this period is that Indian revolutionaries in Bengal effectively exploited those British fears and misconceptions of the goddess as this bloodthirsty demon mother, and they harnessed her as an anti-colonial symbol. Um, and they did that through um, really dramatic popular prints of her um, in the 19th century, um, in which uh, there was one in particular that we show in the exhibition, um, in which the heads that she wears around her neck, which are symbols of the ego, um, assumed an alternative uh, meaning uh, a colonial official uh, at the time, this is in the late 19th century, um, described the image as uh, featuring what appeared to be British looking heads uh, and saw this as the prediction of the fall of the British Empire and that led to its censorship. So there, there are some really fascinating um, instances of Kali, um, you know, really being harnessed as this symbol of Mother India rising up against her colonisers. Um, there's a fantastic quote in um, from a Bengali seditious newspaper, uh, Uganta from 1905, that says, um, uh, rise up, sons of India, the foreign empire draws to a close, for behold, Kali rises in the east. So that kind of gives you a sense of how she was being harnessed at this time by revolutionaries. That's fascinating. I'd like to end by just looking at this object and admiring its beauty, because it, one of the things is that because of the potency of the imagery, in a sense, you can lose that exquisiteness to a certain degree. So can you just describe, because it's painted clay and gilded clay. So tell us about the, the techniques and the, and, and the colour used, for instance. Yes, so it's made of clay, as you say. And yeah, I think the use of colour is highly symbolic in this sculpture. So, of course, she's painted black, uh, Kali means black. It also means time. It's also associated with um, the cyclical nature of time as being a constant process of creation, destruction, recreation. So that colour black really embodies those ideas. Um, the colour red is also highly significant, of course, blood. Um, because so she has this garland of severed heads that you can see hanging from her neck and she has corpses hanging from her ears as well and there are hands um, from, that are hanging from her girdle um, she would have also held a sword that's that's been lost and um, she's also her lower one of her lower hands is carrying a severed head but her mouth is smeared with blood and she's sticking out her tongue um, as though she's thirsting for more blood. And tantric texts describe her as having this gaping mouth with which she devours uh, negative and demonic forces. 
Um, so she appears incredibly fierce, but the important thing to remember is that this is conveying compassion as well and a desire to assist her followers um, on a path to spiritual enlightenment. So she's very much a, a mother figure here, the severed heads representing the human ego, which she's helping her devotees transcend the sword that she would have carried being a sword of wisdom with which she's destroying obstacles to enlightenment. And she's also, her, her top right hand is um, displaying a gesture of fearlessness to reassure and protect her devotees. So there is such rich symbolism behind the sculpture. Well, thank you so much for telling us all about it. Thank you. Tantra, Enlightenment to Revolution, continues at the British Museum in London until the 24th of January next year. The catalogue, written by Emma Ramos and with stunning illustrations throughout, is £30. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The producers of The Week in Art are Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks to Alison and Bob, to Margaret and Legacy and to Emma. And thank you for listening. See you next week when we'll finally be seeing the postponed exhibition of Artemisia Gentileschi's work at the National Gallery in London. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.